Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Albertina Antonini, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law, and we will be discussing her article, Non-Marital Coverture. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Albertina. Thank you, Brian. It's such a pleasure being here. Yeah, it's so great to talk to you. Um, it's very sad that we lost you to Arizona, but I mean, as you know, I'm a big fan of your work and I've read many of, of your papers. And I, I really thought this particular paper was, was great and kind of introduced me to ideas I hadn't thought about, uh, before. And, and I was wondering if you could start by, by talking about what coverture is, because I think this is a concept that a lot of people might not be familiar with. And I think you do a really great job explaining why we ought to be thinking about it. Well, I want to first say thank you for having read and engaged with all my prior work. I know you were at every workshop of mine at Kentucky, so I really appreciate it. It also means that you have some context to understand what I'm doing now, um, because this piece really is the culmination of a lot of work I've been doing in the non-marital case law. Um, so I guess I'll start off by saying what coverture is, because that is in my title. <laughs> that could be very confusing. I will also, though, say that the title is still a matter of flux. It's not quite set. I've been toying around with the new coverture, new in you know quotation marks, or non-marital coverture, which is the title that you just mentioned, or eliminating coverture from the title because it is such a question mark and having something like non-marital property. Um, but mm. let me give you a sense of what coverture is. Okay, so coverture was a legal regime that regulated marriage. And in particular, it held that upon marriage, the husband and the wife became one. And that one was the husband. Um, so the effects of coverture on both the husband and wife were wide ranging. But what I'm most interested in are how the effects of coverture impacted the wife. So she lost her ability to do things like contract because she no longer had a legal identity. It was only under her name. You know, this is kind of symbolized by the wife taking on the name of the husband. So losing her own maiden name and her own first name and just taking on the nomenclature of Mrs. followed by the husband's name. Um, she lost the right to earn property in her own name. Um, she you know, was subject now to the moderate chastisement of her husband. Um, and so there were a number of disabilities and also duties that flowed from coverture. Okay. So how did that work historically, like in practice? And how would you sort of draw that concept up to the present day? Because, you know, coverture is a is sort of a legal concept with a really long historical pedigree. And mm -hmm. I, I think it'll be helpful for people to understand sort of like what it meant at different periods of time, including today where in theory it doesn't exist anymore. Although mm -hmm. you sort of suggested in practice, it may be as present as ever. 
Right. So that's exactly right. So today, the regime of coverture is understood to have been completely dismantled, um, right? We no longer have this sense that the um, husband and wife upon marriage become legally one. You know, maybe spiritually, religiously, romantically, they do become one, but not as a matter of law. A wife no longer loses her legal identity to her husband. Um, so the collapse of coverture is very much an accepted part of our reality. Now, some scholars have actually complicated the narrative of that collapse in the context of marriage. So you have people, people like Jill Hasday, who has somewhat said, you know, we we have overall abolished coverture. It's understood to have been dismantled, in particular as a property regime with the Married Women Property Acts passed at the turn of the century. Um, but there are still remnants that you can see, that you can identify. For instance, this uh, in evidence, right? The fact that you can't testify against your spouse has its roots in coverture or the idea of interspousal tort immunity. The idea that you can't sue each other is also partly finds its history like history and its roots in the doctrine of coverture. We have the work of Reva Siegel, who has shown how at the turn of the century, when we thought that we had gotten away from this property and persons regime, that was very much what coverture was, um, courts transformed the language of coverture into something else, but still very much preserved a lot of the traditional ideas, like the fact that, you know, any housework performed during the course of a relationship was rendered gratuitously. So Reva Siegel, you know, um, considers this transformation through preservation, where she says the language was new, it was updated to comport with our modern sensibilities of what a marriage was but it still very much preserves some of the core elements of coverture. Um, and what I'm doing is, I think, a little bit controversial because I'm actually going outside of marriage. So I'm saying, okay, fine, coverture, I agree, has been, you know, most for the most part, completely abolished in the context of marriage. We've had a lot of reform efforts geared towards making marriage a more egalitarian institution. But what has fallen by the wayside in this project is what's happening in the spaces outside of where formal marriage reaches. And in this space, which is very much outside of the limelight, you have courts continuously relying on doctrines that have their roots in coverture. And so that's the project of this paper to show exactly how courts are relying on coverture and also to show how in relying on these doctrines rooted in coverture, they're also reproducing some of the most pernicious effects of coverture in the process. Yeah. So so maybe in your paper, you you rely a lot on the work of Reva Siegel, you mentioned, and also mm -hmm. uh, Hendrik Hartzog, who's mm -hmm. done some work in the area as well, um, about sort of the roots of the concept of coverture. And I was wondering if maybe you could sort of explain to people what it meant historically and sort of how it came to be a sort of legal concept in like kind of quasi desuetude in sort of understanding how it, it sort of still is present in the way we discuss the topics today, because I mean, I think the history really matters Mm -hmm. In in your paper and in your telling of how this development occurred, and and I don't, I, I suspect a lot of people may not be fully aware of sort of what that history looked like. 
That's absolutely right. And I think you've identified one of the main goals of this piece too, which really is to contextualize the discussions that we're having in this context, because I think we can often have a very um, acontextual discussion as to what ought to happen, right? This idea that non-marriage is now more pressing because people are not marrying, not entering the institution of of marriage is actually a very old discussion, Um, And so I want, so a big part of this is also to contextualize what's currently happening and what has happened before in the hopes that we can learn something from that and not just keep on repeating past mistakes. So that's very true. And I will also just say that I am not addressing coverture wholesale. That is a, you know, task for something much larger than a Law Review article. That's a task, mm-hmm. um, you know, of Hendrik Hartog or Eva Siegel who've written, you know, so much on this particular topic. What I focus on in particular are the property-related aspects of coverture. So how coverture mm-hmm. it interfered and somehow impacted um, each individual's ability to own property, and in particular how the wife was prevented from accessing property. So the, I take on three central characteristics of coverture, which I argue are still present in the non-marital case law to this day. Um, so I'll briefly outline those three characteristics and explain a little bit about them, about each of them. So the first characteristic of coverture was very much the task of role defining. So in coverture, um, the legal regime had specific duties set out for the husband and the wife. In a lot of ways, and Hendrik Hartog talks a lot about this, coverture was a regime that um, made sure that a husband knew how to be a good husband, which included the duty to provide financial support for his wife, and the wife was a good wife. And under coverture, she had the duty to provide services for her husband. Um, and so there was very much, you know, coverture very much defined what a husband and wife were and ought to be. And the law participated in regulating and making sure that each individual stuck to their particular role. So this is role defining. The second characteristic of coverture that I address is um, this idea that the wife owed to her husband the duty to provide services. So this is a very real duty demarcated. So the wife had the duty to provide services within the home. Um, So in this way, any... Um, services the right provided were basically her husband's, right? Her husband had a right to her services. And if she didn't provide them, there were a certain series of consequences that should follow. Um, and by providing or for requ- by requiring the wife to provide services within the home, that also limited her sphere to that of the home, right? She, her, um, role was to perform within the sphere of the home, whereas the husband who had the duty to support had to, you know, go into the marketplace and try to provide financially for the family and for his wife. And the third and final aspect of coverture that was very disabling was to deny access to property um, to the wife. So the idea here is that the wife could not control property that she owned prior to the marriage, upon marriage, right? That was now her husband's to control. Any property that she could acquire during the marriage um, was basically her husband's under his name. Remember that she had lost her legal identity upon marriage and any, you know, wages she could earn outside of the home. If she were to actually enter the marketplace and earn wages, they were technically her husband's because they were under his name. She no longer had a legal identity. So in this way, coverture was very much a legal regime that consolidated property within the figure of the husband. And the wife did not have access to this property. Okay, so fast forward to the non-marital case law. How is this, you know, coming up in these non-marital cases, right, which are, you know, happening currently? Um, You have decisions, you know, in my paper that I talk about from like 2016, everything from the first 
you know, seminal landmark case to set out rights between non-marital couples, which is called Marvin versus Marvin. It was decided in California in the 1970s. To this day, you see courts reproducing some of these or all of these characteristics. So the first one, role defining, the non-marital space is, you know, a really rich place where courts can engage in defining what roles these individuals should have occupied um, in marriage. So you see a lot of cases um, where the court is, you know, faced with an unmarried couple and they're trying to say, should we distribute property in this context? And most of them will say, well, you know, if you wanted property, you should have gotten married. And in that process, they look at the couple before them and they start identifying what roles um, they in fact occupied and whether they should have followed marriage. Um, so in this way, you see how courts are emphasizing, well, what does a marriage look like and what kind of relationships should have taken place in marriage in order for the plaintiff to actually receive the property um, that they are seeking. And in particular, when someone was in a long-term relationship and one of the parties sacrificed their career to tend to the other individual or maybe raise a child that they had together, courts are very reluctant to distribute property because they say this relationship right here, see, that should have taken place in marriage. And what's interesting is that this is true in different sex couples and same-sex couples, and where the plaintiff is a man or a woman. Whoever does the caretaking um, is kind of penalized for doing so, although I will say that the majority of plaintiffs continue to be women in different sex relationships. Um, okay, so that's role defining, right? If we then transition to consider this idea that the wife had the duty to provide services, how is that relevant in today's world? Um, well, I look at how in these cases, case after case across jurisdiction, regardless of the doctrinal basis of the claim, that is, regardless of whether there's a claim for restitution or there's a um, claim based on some contractual theory, um, courts routinely adhere to the idea that services provided in the home in the context of a relationship are rendered gratuitously, right? So for instance, things like financial contributions, the court can easily return at the end of a non-marital relationship. Um, but things like, you know, house cleaning or raising a child, courts say, no, no, no. We're presuming that those are gratuitous, um, which is, you know, sort of a question mark. Why are things like money not rendered gratuitously, but services are. That becomes more clear, and the reason why courts are assuming this um, becomes more clear if we turn to coverture, right? The idea that services are duties owed to the other individual. And then the final aspect of coverture that I think is the most disabling is this idea that the wife or whoever engage in wifely activities is not granted access to property. So in these cases, overall, if you look at all of um, them from this bird's eye view, the individual who engaged in homemaking services is still prevented from accessing and having rights to property. Yeah. Well, so that was, that's amazing. And it was a lot. And, uh, and, and uh, <laughs> I know I need to work on my sound bites. I need to work on my, that, <laughs> not, not, yeah. not, not, not at all. But I mean, like what, what really strikes me about what you just said and about my reading of your paper as mm -hmm. well is the way in which ideology seems to sort of suffuse the way that the judicial system 
And society more broadly thinks about these questions irrespective of the name that we give the policy in question, mm-hmm. right? So it seems like, you know, coverture in, a, in an odd way is almost like a stand-in for an ideological conception of the relationship between people who engage in interpersonal relationships, mm-hmm. you know, irrespective of whatever name we give it. That's really interesting. That's an interesting point because part of what I'm trying to do is to get away from this idea that there are, you know, maybe bad judges or bad legal actors out there, or that there's somehow this overarching um, implicit bias against these female plaintiffs. What I'm trying to do is to show how these judges are really constrained by the common law tools that they have at their disposal. So I don't think anyone is actively thinking, you know, um, I'm now going to uh, make sure that this individual is not going to get the property that he or she is seeking because I don't think that um, services are worth anything given their roots in coverture. Rather, I think all of these tools um, really find their roots in coverture. And so courts are actually doing the best they can in some sense, given how limited they are by these presumptions that are out there that they're not questioning, right? The idea that services are rendered gratuitously is just only explained if we understand that they are, you know, these are services owed to the other individual in the context of an intimate relationship, right? That is, that is a choice that is being made, um, but we no longer see that it is a choice because we have this long history um, of accepting that this is in fact how intimate relationships are structured. Yeah, so maybe you could say a little something about that transition from kind of coverture to non-coverture and how that affected the way courts thought about sort of interpersonal relationships and property ownership. Because I mean it did strike me in reading this paper in in particular that you know when you have an idea like coverture that has a sort of historical significance that defines property ownership in a very sort of particular way that it means something and develops historical meaning in a way that that it it seems like at least in your describing we haven't done a good job in family law at this point of sort of reintegrating some of those expectations into how we think about division of property. Yeah, that's entirely right. And I think in particular in the non-marital space, it's really hard to even get a grasp, right, of what's going on. We don't have a system like marriage. There's no bright line rule here. Um, There's no statute generally that regulates relationships between unmarried individuals. In fact, the Uniform Law Commission is currently trying to draft a statute to see if they can come up with some uniform code for how to address these particular types of claims and also broader claims, just economic rights of cohabitants generally. But you see that courts are struggling. And it's also harder to look at the 50 different states and the different jurisdictions and try to get a sense of what's happening. So I think a lot of this... um, 
you know, of this entrenchment and coverture is partly because no one has taken a light to shine on these cases. And it's hard to get a sense of what patterns are evolving, right? I've worked with these cases for four years now. <laughs> and mm. it's only after taking a really deep dive into all of the case across jurisdictions that patterns begin to emerge. So I think part of what I hope to do in this paper is also just reveal that this is happening um, and get a lot of people to start thinking about how do we um, reconstitute the link that I think was severed by coverture, this link between you know, services and property. Um, so to me, the most important thing is to show, well, how did we, how did this break apart? How did this idea even come up that services don't lead um, to property in some way? And if we understand that the return coverage, then maybe that gives us some sense of how to, you know, reconstitute the link and see, well, maybe we shouldn't just automatically deny property to the individual who took on these types of services that were the wife's under coverture. Um, and I do think it took a lot of explicit statutory reform. I mean, the I mean, problem of female poverty and children's poverty upon divorce was real. Um, and so you had a huge rea, you know, reassessment of the divorce system and what kinds of rules and statutes were put into place in order to ensure that, you know, individuals weren't left destitute at the end of a uh, marriage through divorce. I think there's been a lot more work in the context of marriage to eradicate some of the most um, disabling effects of coverture in that realm, but that has not taken place at all in the non-marital realm. Um, and now it's coming to the fore given how many people are choosing not to marriage and how that, that's becoming more part of our consciousness. But I think there's still a lot of work to be done to understand what the law is doing, how it's doing it, and why it's doing it. And I think coverture provides the most complete explanation for what's currently happening. And I will also just say that coverture also explains, or this idea that courts are relying on coverture also explains when courts do in fact decide to distribute property. So one of the things they found is that um, courts are much more comfortable awarding close to half of the property at issue in a relationship um, when they avoid considering services entirely. So when a plaintiff is seeking property on the basis of a claim for partition, just the partition of the property, like for instance, the home that they shared, courts are much more willing to recognize it across jurisdictions because they don't have to engage in this um, task of valuing homemaking services. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and really one of the things that struck me more than anything else about your paper was the way in which how you talk about like sort of dispute resolution in a non-marital context mm -hmm. sort of forces us to think about how – about the assumptions we have about dispute resolution in a marital context as well. And more broadly speaking, sort of how we think about these particular kinds of interpersonal relationships in relation to property and property distribution and contract and all, so many other legal forms that we kind of take for granted that sort of kind of track well onto this set of relationships, but in other respects, don't track well at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really taking, I'm going to butcher this quote, but Carol Rose said something in one of her um, articles reviewing a book saying, you know, what we need um, in 
you know, in families and families to talk more about property, not less of it. There's so much that happens in the context of a family that's oftentimes understood to somehow, you know, this separate spheres analogy that the family exists in this effective space of love and gratuity and altruism, when in fact, it's one of the mechanisms through which we distribute property, one of the most important ones that we have. You see this, you know, during marriage and divorce, during coupling, right? Non-marital coupling and separation. At the moment of death, the family is, you know, a vehicle that needs to be understood as a means of distributing property. And so given that we have a system that links intimate relations with property distribution, we need to understand when and how it does that and question why it decides to distribute property in certain circumstances and not in others. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it made me think that like in a lot of ways we ought to be thinking about properly about family law as a kind of corporate law <laughs> in, in, in some ways, you know, because it has similar effects on people's well-being, you know, and in terms of how people think about distributions among themselves and that like sort of corporate law analogies don't always track well mm-hmm. onto sort of people's expectations or desires when it comes to interpersonal relationships. Right. There's always this question um, of how should families and how should family law treat families? Um, is there, you know, do we have this family law exceptionalism in so many ways and in so many areas? And the question always is, is it justified? Should we treat these families as other entities, you know, the question is always like, what is the appropriate analogy? What should we be relying on in determining how to, in fact, treat these uh, relationships? And should we prioritize sexual relationships over and above other types of relationships, right? That's another question that comes up often. Um, but I, I do think that revealing the role that coverture continues to play is an important first step in ensuring that the conversation we have about, well, then, um, what kinds of rights should these individuals have, um, has a better answer because currently I think a lot of the scholarship and a lot of the conversations we're having around this is already at the should step is already at the, how should these couples be treated, right? Are they like corporations or mm. should we, a lot of um, the scho- the scholarship around this area, and rightly so, I think, is concerned with issues of autonomy and choice, um, but also the concern that we're not properly privatizing dependencies and um, how should we define autonomy and choice such that it either leads or doesn't lead to property distribution. Um, I think those are all important conversations to have, but I also think it's very important to be clear in terms of what isn't being recompensed. And that is one, homemaking services, and two, who that's affecting, generally the homemaker, which still tends to be um, the women, although it also affects the same sex couples where one individual took on those um, activities over and above the other. Um, And also what kinds of effects it's reproducing, right? This real, you know, this real barrier to accessing property. And the other thing that's happening is that non-marital relationships tend to occur um, among uh, individuals who occupy lower socioeconomic levels, right? Marriage is becoming increasingly available only to the highly educated and those with more resources. So if the couples who aren't marrying are those who have fewer resources, and we're also preventing individuals within those relationships from accessing resources, I think we have a you know different set of consequences to consider. Yeah, that I mean that that makes a lot of sense to me. 
And I'd like to return to that in just a second. But I, I also wanted to ask you sort of about the rhetoric that judges use as well, because it seems to tie into a lot of what you were just saying about sort of expectations about marriage and property distribution. Because you talk in your paper a lot about how sort of courts sort of apply expectations to non-marital couples um, that are situated in sort of a sort of implicitly marital context for better or for worse. Right. So, I mean, the non-marital space, I think, um, I think I've made it clear in this piece and prior pieces is just saturated with marriage, right? There's no way to get away from it. Courts either rely on marriage to distribute property saying this relationship was marital like, or they rely on marriage to say there was no marriage. Therefore we don't distribute property. There's always this back and forth um, in the non-marital space between marriage and non-marriage. Um, I will say that I love <laughs> working in family law in these cases because courts tend to be, um, you know, more explicit than one would think in their motivating factors and you have really interesting language and interesting reason that you can really dig into. But what's what's fascinating to me is that even the cases that you think are more middle of the road or um, don't have these normative priors necessarily that are, uh, I don't know, retrograde or not progressive are also doing the same exact thing as these more colorful <laughs> opinions are in sort of denying the individual access to property. So, you know, you have um, a few jurisdictions, very few, who still deny any property on the basis of a non-marital relationship. And there you often get colorful opinions for why, right? So there's this great case um called Davis versus Davis. And you have there, um, the plaintiff is Elvis. You can't get a really better name, Elvis Davis. And there you have the court um, describe their relationship, right? Elvis Davis was in a 13-year relationship with Travis Davis. They had children together. Elvis, you know, painted doors and hung wallpapers, sewed curtains and bedspreads, took care of the yard, took care of the children, right? She even gardened and preserved homegrown vegetables, um, and you see the court there, the Mississippi court say, um, if she had wanted any property at the end of that relationship, she should have married. The court specifically notes Elvis rejected Travis's proposals of marriage. And it says that was folly under the circumstances. Um, and it explains, you know, Elvis could have taken this opportunity. She says, the court says when opportunity knocks, one must answer its call. Right. So there you have a court very explicitly saying that if Elvis had wanted any property at the conclusion of her non-marital relationship, she should have gotten married. Right. So there you have a very explicit claim to marriage where the court is um, engaging in um, looking at this relationship, saying, OK, there was a very clear homemaking breadwinner division of labor. And when that's the case. Um, the only way you get property is through marriage. But even the more, you know, run of middle of the road um, cases that don't sort of jump out at you as this one does are reproducing some of the same ideas and the same notions in their much more staid opinions. So it seems to me that you're identifying this sort of social inequity that's 
in a sense, reified through the ideologies of marriage, including coverture. And, And I'm wondering, like, how you think we should approach the sort of non-marital situation in a way that would resolve some of those inequities. In other words, like what should the role of the state be in these contexts? Because, you know, I mean, like the cases that you present are inevitably sort of outliers where something significant was at stake that wouldn't necessarily have been at stake in many other relationships. And of course, people form and dissolve interpersonal relationships all, all the time. But, you know, I mean, if those relationships are inequitable in the way that you identify, and it seems to me likely that they are, you know, like, how does, how do courts and how does the government in general engage with sort of changing the way people think about them? Yeah, so you just asked the million dollar question, right? (laughs) What should the state do? Um, how should courts or how should um, legislatures set out a regime that is fair or at least instituting, um, you know, instituting rules that fairly deal with the different individuals in this couple? Um, so I'll just say that this article is clearly critical of the reasons that courts decline to distribute property and also the conditions that are reinforced as a result, right? The fact that coverture to this day provides a comprehensive explanation for how courts distribute property is problematic. Um, And so that really was the motivating concern of this paper to show and expose how this is still taking place and the mechanisms through which the property distribution is taking place. Um, So that to me is, you know, a really important first step that the literature will benefit from in order to understand what exactly we're dealing with. Okay, so I do think, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to say, I do think the way that courts are engaging in property distribution is problematic and that it does result in inequitable results, especially in a lot of these cases. You're also right to point out that a lot of these cases, um, by definition, come up when one individual stepped out of the market. Right, because otherwise there wouldn't be such a large um, property differential between the two individuals. Right, if they both maybe maintain some work in the market and no one really sacrificed their ability to earn an income, um, we wouldn't have as many of these cases. Right, so they they are skewed in the sense that the sample of individuals and the couples that you're seeing come to court are those in which their earning potential is very um, different. So that does explain the reason why we have um, these cases. Now, one of the ways forward that I think could be positive is to try to not only, um, you know, reunify the link that has been severed by coverture between services and access to property, but also try to just separate courts' reliance, if courts is going to be the world in which we continue living unless, you know, legislatures act, um, to sever their reliance on marriage as the metric by which to... Uh, determine whether or not a non-marital couple 
ought to have property distributed at the end, right? So that really is my goal. And there are not that many examples of what that would look like, but one interesting jurisdiction that has been able to separate their analysis of what kinds of property should follow at the end of a non-marital relationship is Kansas. So mm. Kansas um, has a really interesting way of conceptualizing a non-marital couple. So they don't compare the relationship to marriage. They don't consider whether it was like marriage or not like marriage and distributing property, but they ju- they, they, they say in their words, they undertake a deeper analysis that goes beyond which party actually paid for the property and acknowledge that a party can help contribute to accumulating property by taking care of the home and child. So they often can conceptualize that kind of labor and right, you know, labor as the origin or source of property rights is very well established. Um, and so where that type of labor has taken place in the context of the relationship, courts in Kansas say that that individual has own, an ownership interest in the property equal to the one who had title over the property. So at least Kansas um, provides one example of a court engaging in an assessment of one to distribute property that's not tied to this idea of marriage in any way, shape or form. And I think that there's some value in that. So Albertina, I was wondering kind of in closing, if maybe you could reflect on ways in which courts might be able to move beyond the ideology or sort of the language of coverture and the ideology of marriage in thinking about personal relationships because it seems like to me that's sort of like the key suggestion in your paper that this isn't the right way to think about how people interact with each other right so i think that the um the comparison to marriage is always fraught, partly too, because marriage is not a static thing. <laughs> you know, people marry and people have the ability to create their own marriages and marriage just provides this bright line rule. Um, and so marriage is also not the status static thing that has this settled definition as much as the law would like us to think it does. So engaging in comparisons to marriage is always fraught. And the reason why I also choose coverture, right? I've actually received a number of questions about, well, why isn't this project just about the patriarchy? (laughs) Or why is this project not just about, um, like, you know, sexist judges or sexist application of the laws? Or why isn't this project just about the devaluation of female services in general? And to me, um, even though those may all partly be true, they're not specific enough. They're not specific enough. And because they're not specific enough, it doesn't give us this sense of what we can do moving forward. But if we understand what's taking place in these cases um, as having its roots in a doctrine that we understand and that we know, then that seems to me to give us a much clearer path forward. Right. We can then understand that if we have this influence of this archaic legal doctrine in this space, well, we then have some pretty, I think, to my mind, relatively clear steps of what to do. We can now understand that the um, underlying reason why these courts are, you know, consistently not in, not distributing property um, sufficiently, to my mind, or 
we can understand when they do decide to distribute property, for instance, when they can avoid any valuation of services, that gives us a sense of, okay, well, we've dealt with coverture in the marital space. How can we get it at its roots in this non-marital space now? Cool. Well, thanks so much, Albertina. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. Wishing in their eyes And all they ever offered me